Riddle me this, podcast listeners. Who does Freedom's Uncle Sam pay his taxes to? Why, well, himself, of course, he's Uncle Sam. You know, I wouldn't have started with such a lame joke, but this year, or this podcast year, I should say, is the bicentennial one, 1976. And so much happened that year, including the Battle of the Century, Spider-Man versus Superman, or Superman versus Spider-Man, who, whichever you like best, Marvel, DC. And Jeanette Kahn came in as... Carmen Infantino was shown the door at DC Comics. There was the DC Super DC Comic Con in New York City. And so, so much more. And this week, we give it all to you on one big heaping platter. We are the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Field. And here are my cohorts in crime, Alex the Anvil Grand. Alex, how are you this week? How's everybody doing? Fantastic. Haven't seen you since last year. And of course, Jimmy, Jimbo, Tommy Thompson. Jim, how are you this year? Hi, Bill. I'm good. That's good to hear. This brings us to part one of the podcast. We'll call it the It's Not Personal, Sonny. It's Strictly Business edition. So without further ado, I will ask you guys what do you think the top story is this year do you think like i do that the superman spider-man team up was a big deal alex yeah absolutely although take in mind that that superman spider-man crossover although it was a landmark issue and infantino and stan lee did put aside the company differences to make that fun issue it wasn't DC and Marvel's first collaboration. It was actually the 1975 Wizard of Oz comic book that came out a year before, but that did lay the groundwork to make the Superman Spider-Man comic. That's good to know, and it featured some wonderful art, if I'm not mistaken. It was John Basima. Now, actually, it was Ross Andrew who did the art, because he was doing so much Spider-Man by that point, but it's not a simple answer. Jerry Conway who was writing Superman at the time and who wrote Spider-Man before because he had just moved from Marvel to DC, was chosen by Infantino to write it. And then Ross Andrew did the art. However, when Dick Giordano was working on some of those pages, he would bring it over to his continuity studios and Neil Adams would kind of secretly play around with the Superman and make him look more Superman-like. I had also heard that Ramita cleaned up some of the Spider-Man images as well. That's my understanding on both of those, that Adams actually pretty much redrew the Andrew Supermans. Well, I saw some John Buscema pages the other day as well, so maybe... The issue that you're thinking about where John Buscema was penciling is a sequel to that book. It's a 1981 book of Superman and Spider-Man when they fight Doctor Doom and Parasite. And John Buscema yeah. penciled that oh, one. Oh, that's right. That's right. And that's a fun issue. I liked it. I don't remember it being that far ahead, but... That's funny. Yeah, 1981. Yeah, Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief at that time. Or was that Batman Hulk? There was definitely Batman Hulk. Bushima did the first, he did the Wizard of Oz one that Alex mentioned. That is right. But not this one. This was Ross Andrew. Now, here's a little bit of trivia for you guys on the Superman Spider-Man comic. Who lettered it? Since we are more familiar with lettering now, we spoke to Tom Orzachowski a couple episodes ago. Who lettered that issue? Jasper Saladino. 
That's right. It was Gaspar Saladino who was the guru of lettering at Marvel when Orzechowski joined, and everyone that was the newer letterer would essentially do all the pages after Gaspar would do the splash pages. Because Gaspar made you gasp. He was so good. <laughs> Jim, any thoughts about Superman Spider-Man yourself? Yeah, a couple of things. Alex, when was the last time you read this? A couple years ago. And Bill, obviously it's been a while for you because you're talking about John Bushima. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Bill, good research. It hasn't been that <laughs> long. My copy, by the way, is signed by both Roy and Stan. Nice. So, top you both. That's cool. All right. So, what I wanted to bring up was just how bad book actually is. I mean, the the art is fine, especially because of some of the improvements done, and it's in a large size. But reading it, and I, I reread it this morning, it reminds you of how clunky some of this stuff is. And when people talk about, oh, I, I don't like current comics, and I only like old comics, and how great they are, Gary Conway isn't the most smoothest writer in the world. And it's really, really dated to the point of it being hard to enjoy to be such a millstone book and yet be this bad in so many ways. I mean, you have Lex Luthor as a bank robber kind of a character. I mean, he just a crime guy knocking over things for money. It's got this unbelievably bad sequence in there where Mary Jane Watson attacks Lois Lane for going by the name Miss Lane and saying, leave my man alone, sort of afraid she was going to hit on Parker. It's just so wrong in so many ways that it doesn't hold up. Let's just leave it at that. That's interesting. Where it holds up and where it is important is that it is the first of the company crossover from a superhero perspective. And what it allows us for is much better works in the future. The uh, JLA Avengers with Perez, it comes to mind immediately, but also the X-Men and Teen Titans amalgam whole series of mashup comics, including probably my favorite, the Mark Wade Gibbons Super Soldier Man of War, which is just a beautifully rendered combination of Superman and Captain America. Burn that did the Dark Side Galactus one, that also is a real standout. So there's a lot of things that followed from this that are much better, more in enjoyable to this day but this is the one that started it all oh i wanted to add one other thing that's just a historical note on this there was no formal editor listed in the original edition it did say consulting editing by and then listed thomas schwartz wolfman and gridwell sounds like it's more of just a publicity company crossover political way of documenting these things that's right now, Alex, I was wondering what you had to say about the departure of Carmen Infantino and the arrival of Jeanette Kahn as the head of D.C., uh, which was right around that same time. Actually, I believe she came in in February and Superman versus Spider-Man came out in January. So that's an interesting thing. We were talking about this in the Facebook group and Warner, who owned DC Comics, or rather it was called National Periodical Publications, fired Infantino over how much money was lost in 1975. And in his autobiography, he said, or rather he justified all the spending and production with trying to compete with the Marvel glut, or they would lose their place in the newsstands. And this was all while he was setting up the new Superman movie and working as both publisher and president. So he felt betrayed when he was fired by Warner Brothers and replaced by Jeanette Kahn. And he actually freelanced right away with Warren, 
over with creepy and eerie comics. Did you ever read any of those, Bill? No. He was just making uh, comic stories for them for those magazines, for Eerie and Creepy. This was roughly around 1976 toward the latter half. And then he started working with Marvel in 1977, where his more commonly known stuff with the Star Wars and Spider-Woman comics were starting to be made around that time. Jim, are you aware why... Uh, Warren took on Carmen Infantino. Was it because of his friendship with Joe Orlando, who was also moonlighting there? I honestly don't know why, apart from that he could churn out pages like crazy. And with all the inkers they had at their disposal, it seemed like a good match. But no, I don't know why Warren took him on. My impression was that Jim Warren had a professional courtesy toward Carmine Infantino at that time. That was what my thought was. And that's what I believe it was, too. That's what I would expect. And he was working at Marvel and DC at the same time for many years after that, while he was still penciling Spider-Woman. And then when he went into that long run of Flash, which was some of his most brilliant pencils, as far as I'm concerned. Really? I hate that stuff. He went back to Flash? I'm so glad we're not agreeing this year as usual, Jim. No, <laughs> no. I also liked his Dial H for Hero stuff when those twins, the boy and the girl, stole the dial from uh, Bobby Benson. They didn't steal it. I'm just joking. But, you know. Like his stuff during that period, it's just the Flash was hard for me because I can't divorce it from his earlier Flash run that is, to me, one of the definitive superhero runs of all time right up there with kirby and didco and the subsequent stuff the carrie bates stories i think that the trial is just horrendous it's I think one of the worst things ever in comics do you guys think a lot of that difference is from a difference in inker murphy anderson on infantino was heavenly right spectacular yeah that inking was different later in the early 80s wasn't it Infantino did the same thing Kirby did, and as he got older, he drew less frames per page, and I personally believe that it made his story quality go down because his sequential art was suffering as a result of trying to do less work. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. When he came in and doing the Flash starting with Showcase 4, he was coming from a new high art, art school focus. He was dormant for a decade or more, and then he comes back, and he's incredibly rusty. The Warren stuff looks good because of the inks, because it has Alex Toth inking and Wrightson inking and Alcala inking and, and all of those. Alex Nino doing amazing inking on Infantino. But in the Marvel work and the DC work, it's more pedestrian and more traditional in terms of the inkers. I don't know. I I don't think it's anywhere like the quality that he was doing in the 60s. Nice. And wasn't one of the early things he did, Lorna the Cave Girl? Early in his career? Actually over at Atlas, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I could talk all day about Infantino and the stuff at Atlas, both in terms of horror and romance. But I think that's a topic of another conversation. Oh, absolutely. And he had just peaked 10 years prior to that when the Batman TV show came out and they basically gave him the reins to the company, right? Peaked professionally or artistically? Professionally. We could also talk about his cover designs and what he was, I mean, there he was really a standout in terms of that, those Batman books were jumping right off of the stands in terms of design. That was where his real strength was, unfortunately kind of led to his demise in some ways, because that's what put him into management and a big neglect in terms of his actual artistic abilities, I think. 
he did have quite a few different jobs. He was both publisher, president, and producing a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff at DC. So when he was replaced in 1976, Jeanette Kahn, who replaced him as publisher, and I think the intent was also to make her president, but Saul Harrison, who had been there since the 40s, was kind of upset that this new person just comes in and gets a job. So out of a diplomatic decision, Warner made Saul Harrison the president and then Jeanette Kahn, who was a kid magazine creator, and made her publisher. And she did change quite a few things. The official name of DC Comics wasn't DC Comics yet. It was still National Periodical Publication. So she made it into DC Comics. And she did not come off to a very successful start right away, though, because her super friends and Shazam DC TV comic lines that were kid-friendly and more like kid magazine stuff didn't sell so well. Did you guys read any of that stuff? Yes, I did. I liked them. I liked them because I liked the uh, fact that they brought in so many heroes from other countries. They brought in Zan and Jaina. You didn't get much of Marvin and Wendy, unfortunately, in Wonder Dog. You only got them in that one Toth giant-sized dollar comic. Remember that, Jim? Yeah. I love that. That has a lot of background into how he did the artwork for Super Friends also, which to me, Super Friends is probably one of the greatest TV shows because that's where a lot of kids first got their first view of Superman, Wonder Woman, and Justice League. And of course, we have the recent Justice League movie, which they're even putting in a Hall of Justice at the end of the movie. So there are quite a few nods to the Super Friends And something else about Jeanette Kahn that I thought was really nice and did actually have some ramifications into opening up opportunities for creators at DC and Marvel later when Jim Shooter started kind of copying it was she gave creators 20% of licensing fees for creating new characters. And that's pretty cool. That's kind of revolutionary at that time. And I think that paved the way for a lot of successful creators in the 80s. And that's something that I think companies are missing now. They need to do stuff like that in order to improve innovation because right now they're just kind of rehashing the same character but changing the person and the costume. And I think new creations and rewarding that, I think that's wonderful. I think that was huge pioneering from Jeanette Kahn. Big deal stuff. Did we talk about the idea that she was 28 when she came into this? Which just floors me. You will see now how people will talk about Marvel has young women running things and and that's why they're bad and, and on and on and on. This was a woman in an industry that never had this kind of publishing control by a woman in power and she comes in, no history of comics, at 28 years old And my understanding is that Joe Orlando, who later became friends with her, immediately went in the bathroom at D.C. and threw up. Jeanette Kahn was actually quite savvy with comics, and that's because she had her boyfriend at the time, Neil Adams, tutoring her through comics. I, I didn't say she wasn't savvy. I said she hadn't worked in the industry. Again, I have to take exception because Dynamite, up until the time she left, featured a different superhero origin of a DC or Marvel character in every issue. I'm sorry, but she was. So do you believe that DC made a wrong move by hiring her, or do you believe that it's something that wound up panning out over the years? It was an incredibly smart move. She basically saved DC, in my opinion, for bringing in Vertigo. More importantly, for bringing in the British invasion. Without her, I doubt very seriously we would have had more. We wouldn't have had Graham Morrison. We wouldn't have had any of those guys. Neil Gaiman, 
without question. She's essential to the success. This is why DC became the primary comic company over Marvel. Went ahead of them was because of Jeanette Kahn. And she also brought in Frank Miller, if I'm not mistaken, with both Ronan and then gave him the reins to the Dark Knight series. Well, yes, she was instrumental in Dark Knight. Now, also, there is another comic at that time that was canceled by Carmine Infantino, and that was Warlord by Mike Grell. And she reversed Carmine's decision almost right away. And I think that was a good call. Those Warlord comics by Grell are pretty amazing. And she also, under her, Wonder Woman rejoined the Justice League because, remember, she had been depowered in 1969. So she had Wonder Woman come back powerful and among all the other dudes in the Justice League. And that was pretty cool. Those were great moves by her. And then that brings us to the musical chairs going on at Marvel. Who were all the editors back then, guys? <laughs> well, Marvel Wolfman was the editor-in-chief going into 76, and he actually resigned just because there were just so many books. And this was the writer-editor age of Marvel, where you had Starlin editing his own stuff, McGregor editing his own stuff, and Steve Gerber editing his own stuff. So whenever, as editor-in-chief, Wolfman wanted to make changes to the books, they loved their own writing, so they would not make any changes. And after a while, that just tired out Marv Wolfman. So he resigned, and then there was Jerry Conway. And I think Jerry Conway was on for, what, only about a month? Isn't that right, Jim? Yeah, if, if that. It was a super short time period. Hadn't he already been at DC when he went back to Marvel as editor? Okay, so that that's a good question. So uh, Jerry Conway first was at Marvel in the early 70s. He killed Gwen Stacy and uh, Submariner's dad. Then after that, he went to DC and was working on Commandy and a f quite a few other things. And he also then wrote the Superman Spider-Man. Then he went back to Marvel and he was trying to be editor-in-chief, and he was only like 22 or something at the time, and he bit off way more than he could chew because then he uh, had lost Englehart, McGregor, and Starlin on their books because he would essentially put in fill-in comics because they weren't making their deadlines. And so he got so tired that everyone hated him that he just quit after about close to 30 days. And I will say, though, that Englehart was amazing on Doctor Strange, and Starlin was amazing on his books. And McGregor's Black Panther, they were all amazing. So to see them all go, kind of sad. It's pretty jarring for me, actually, to switch from Englehart Doctor Strange to a non-Englehart Doctor Strange. It's very odd. I don't like it. Jim, what do you have to say about this era of the revolving door at Marvel? These are my favorite Marvel comics of all time because they really are creator-controlled. Not creator-owned, but creator-controlled. Jim Shooter steps in and, for me, ruins it all. I like the control that Marv Wolfman had over the books he's writing, and I like what Starlin is doing, just like Alex said. I understand that there were issues. They didn't come out on time, things like that. But, boy, the freedom that was present there really showed in the content. Absolutely. That Engelhart Doctor Strange, when he had Benjamin Franklin bang Clea as she cheated on him while he was away at work fighting undersea dragons and such. I remember reading that with the Gene Colan art thinking, wow, this is breathtaking stuff. And I believe he left because they retconned that it wasn't the actual true Ben Franklin, 
that banged Doctor Strange's girlfriend, they said that it was some shape-shifting someone else, a magician, or something else. I forgot what it was. And that upset Engelhart because he felt that Benjamin Franklin should bang Clea. And I, I agree with him. What do you guys think about that? You know, that that leaves me at a loss for words, which rarely happens. I don't remember Clea banging the Master of Liberty, Ben Franklin. You don't remember that, Bill? Really? No. Oh, Are you guys oh. kidding me? Is this a joke? No, I no. I remember this. Bill, I thought you were the 1976 expert. This is a great issue. And it was so romantic to see Benjamin Franklin's chubby cheeks caress Clea's lips. And honestly, it made me feel something. It made me feel something deep inside. feel like I'm on an episode of Jackass or something. I cannot believe... I do believe you guys, but this is like one of those out there things that I guess I missed. I guess I haven't reread those issues of Doctor Strange. And this is why Steve Englehart was a genius. This is why Don McGregor with his Black Panther and the KKK and then Jim Starlin with his cosmic stuff... They were just genius. The writer-editor age was pretty cool. And Marv Wolfman's Dracula was breathtaking stuff. This was just a great time. And Gene Colan was all over Marvel at the time. He was doing Howard the Duck. He was doing Doctor Strange. He was doing Dracula, like, all at the same time. He was really Marvel's number one artist at the time, almost. He was also very fast. That had a lot to do with him getting so many books at the time, I believe. If you look at his work, it's still completely current. He's been dead for years, and yet his work still looks as current as it ever did. I believe it's because he had such a humanic way of getting his characters across, and they look so realistic, photorealistic, that you could feel what they were feeling, especially in the Tomb of Dracula, which is probably my personal favorite. Yeah, I love those issues. But yeah, so that was a great time. Again, once Jerry Conway left, Archie Goodwin became editor-in-chief actually for about a year and a half, almost two years, where he came from his black and white Marvel magazines. And Archie Goodwin is nowhere near as controversial of an editor-in-chief as the people before or after. He was just one of those really nice guys that were working with everyone to get the books out on time. And he did not end the writer-editor roles. Everyone wanted to, managerial wanted to, and that inevitably came down to Jim Shooter to do around 1978 or so. It was actually around that time where Jack Kirby, who was also a writer-editor of his own books, he left Marvel at the time. So there's like a list of five guys, and Jim Shooter had a check list getting rid of each one as a writer editor and jack kirby just went to animation so that was an easy problem for him to self-resolve although i didn't look at it as a problem i love those books so yeah i think archie goodwin was a great editor he really was it was only when shooter took over that i think problems started materializing. we had that wonderful new universe i won't get into that that brings us to the star wars licensing deal in 1976. And in 1976, the people from Star Wars first appeared in pre-promotional goodness at Super DC Con in New York City. And that led a lot of people to believe that DC was going to get the adaptation deal where they were sadly mistaken because George Lucas was a big Marvel fan and wanted Howard Chaikin, who was more closely associated with Marvel at the time, as we were talking about before we went on the air. And something that I had read was that Howard Chaikin had already done some science fiction comic art, and George Lucas specifically wanted him 
to do the Star Wars comics, and that was all part of the deal. And from my understanding, Roy Thomas was the one that negotiated this deal because at first he wasn't that convinced, then he wanted to, then he ended up having to convince Stan Lee, who didn't really want to deal with that at the time and put out the money or risk. But Roy Thomas really went up to bat for Star Wars to be a Marvel comic at the time. Well, I just want to say also, it's sometimes reported that Stan Lee just didn't think science fiction sold well and wasn't buying into Star Wars, which, of course, hadn't been released yet. But I've also read where it was simply he didn't want to make a deal before the film came out and was hesitant to do that because, of course, nobody knew whether the film was going to be successful or not. Logan Lund, the comic book adaptation by Marvel, was not selling very well, and that, that had an awful lot to do with Stan's uh concern do you know why duck artist carl bart has a major role in this story nope i don't the entire process of the deal being made for marvel to get star wars started when roy thomas invited george lucas over for dinner to purchase page of carl bark's art that's how george told him about what he was working on and what it was going to be and roy thomas early on desperately wanted to get this in marvel's bullpen Only on CBH can we hear nuggets like this. The end result was a 107-issue run plus three annuals that went from 77 through 1986, and it basically saved Marvel Comics during the years of 79 and 80 when Star Wars was one of its absolute top sellers. This is what sort of kept the company afloat during some really otherwise hard times in the industry. That's right. And something to note is that although Carmine was trying to face off against the Marvel glut by matching just high volume of some great and some not so great comics to match Marvel, who was doing the same thing, they were both losing money on this war of attrition, as you can call it. Marvel had Star Wars to bail it out, and DC did not have Star Wars type success to bail it out. And so both companies had very different paths in the late 70s. And would you say that helped contribute to the DC implosion a little bit later? Yeah. One of the things that contributed to the DC implosion was the DC explosion. And so in that regard, yes, because that was part of an effort to keep up with Marvel, which had a new freedom to release as many books as it wanted to. And so it's all tied together. Yes. Amazing. Well, that brings us to part two. 1976, okay, maybe it's a little bit personal after all. Yes, the rivalry remains. DC introduces Power Girl. Marvel responds by bringing back Wonder Man from the dead. And Jack Kirby comes home to Marvel. What do you guys have to say about that? Yeah, something I want to frame just very quickly on that is Jerry Conway revived All-Star Comics at issue 58 in 1976, and that was actually at the suggestion of Roy Thomas, who loved all that Golden Age stuff and who would later write Justice Society Comics. And what they did was they resumed the numbering from All-Star Comics from 1950 when it changed to All-Star Western, which is one of those things that transitioned from Golden Age to Atomic Age. And so by renumbering it and starting that fresh at All-Star Comics 58, they were able to introduce Power Girl, who was created by Jerry Conway, Rick Estrada, and Wally Wood. And something about Wally Wood inks is it's interesting because his inks dominate the pencils. If you ever see him ink, it looks like he did the whole thing. And he had his character look like his 1970s character, Sally Forth. Something I also think is interesting is that usually inkers don't get a creator credit, but he did because his inks dominate so much. I would frame it slightly differently in that Wally Wood was the principal artist on it, 
although he didn't draw the layouts, in that they brought in people that he could use to ink over. But it wasn't that he was over-inking the artist that was brought in. The artist was there as a vehicle for Wally Wood to get his style of art on those pages. This was done 100% as a Wally Wood project. Interesting. So Rick Estrada was more of just a vehicle for Wood to draw the project. That's right. Estrada was not there because of appreciation for his art. It was simply to make it easier for Wood so that he would meet his time commitments and stuff. I believe he truly brought back a style that has enamored me ever since it came out. It was an update of the 1940s all-star style, don't you think, Jim? And he was also working with Steve Ditko at the time on two different titles at DC, if not, I'm not mistaken, right? Are yeah, you, you're talking well, Stalker, what's uh, the other? Well, issue two, which never came out of Man Bat, if I'm not mistaken, was going to be taken over by Ditko and Wood. And, well, Ditko uh, did the first one. Yes. And Wood inked, if I'm not mistaken. And then Wood also was currently inking Ditko over at Atlas at the same time, which is a company that came out in 1976, which we haven't talked about yet. Atlas, which was spearheaded, I believe it was part of Seaboard Comics, and it was Dan Lee's little brother, Larry Lieber, that was heading that up, and he had quite a few comic creators from Marvel and DC working there. Am I not mistaken? I could be. Well, you're mistaken about Wood on Man Bat, that's for sure, because that was Al Milgram. Yeah, if it was Wood inking, that issue would have looked a lot better than what it did. Well, yeah. yeah, sorry, Al. But wasn't there a comic book called The Stalker? Yeah. Which was Wood and Ditko, wasn't it? Ditko on pencils, Wood on inks. Yeah, that was great. Right. Yeah, good call, Bill. Wood on pencils, not Wally Wood. Never mind. But Atlas brought in people like Ernie Colon, Larry Lieber doing some of the art. Who else? Help me out here, guys. I'm sure you re- you've read some of those Atlas comics. Well, Steve Ditko did some of the art in Atlas. He did Destructor. And Wood inked that. So Yeah, he did ink a couple of them. I mean, Larry Lieber did some of that stuff, too, toward the last couple issues, I think. But what I did like about Atlas is that this was kind of like that time, though, when Genetcom gave creators some licensing money. Martin Goodman, who wanted revenge on Marvel for making Stan Lee the publisher instead of his son, Chip Goodman, created Atlas. And he actually did give more percentage of money return to the artists, let them keep their original art pages, and had all these capitalistic perks for the creators that, although Atlas was a short-lived thing, I think that with Jeanette Kahn did improve access for creators to their own money. I think that year, 76, did essentially open up those doors for for the 80s to happen. And don't forget Demon Slayer by David Anthony Kraft during that period at Atlas. Then he became Devil Slayer when he brought the character back to Marvel, if I'm not mistaken. Buckler, I mean, in terms of who has real proprietary interest in that. Dak had told me himself that he still retained some kind of interest in it. I just mean in terms of creating character it was. I always thought of it as a Buckler character because Buckler brought it into various comic book companies. Buckler was huge and doing quite a bit of the work as penciler at Atlas at the time and doing a lot of the cover art, too. I remember, wasn't it Trog or something like that, the 1960s movie that he did that was kind of a Credible Hulk takeoff? at atlas i can't remember the name of the character now you mean the Um, brute brute yeah brute which was really trog which was a bad joan crawford movie from the mid 60s they brought that whole plot line as they did with planet of the vampires and a few other things that they just stole straight out at atlas and that's all i have to say about atlas folks then we come to something else that was going on at the time 
1976, as part of that all-star relaunch, Conway introduced Power Girl. And that was one year after Luke Cage had changed his name to Power Man, thereby, according to Shooter, really irritating Marvel. Marvel had made a deal way back in Avengers, what was it, 9, I think, with the introduction of Wonder Man. DC apparently lodged a complaint or at least called up and said, hey, it's not okay. We have Wonder Woman. And so Stan accommodated that and literally buried Wonder Man. And we didn't see much of him for the next decade or so. After Power Girl premiered, they immediately got orders. Okay, game's on. And they, in Avengers 151, just a few months later, Wonder Man shows up in a box as a zombie and rejoins the Avengers. Even though there's a lot of goodwill coming from that Spider-Man Superman, it was not all goodwill and flowers between Marvel and DC. Nice. So Wonder Man and his return is a reaction to Power Girl. That's what you're saying. That's exactly right. That's pretty cool. According to Jim Shooter. And I wouldn't mind watching Power Girl and Wonder Man, you know, embrace and have a physical relationship. Okay, on that note, we'll just move right through that, of course. (laughs) Um, Man, I feel like I need to go take a shower, Jim. I don't know about you. There's a PW joke in this, too, but I'm not going to make it. (laughs) Look, don't be taking Vaseline in the shower with you, Bill. Seriously, is that why you want to go to the shower now? I'm not going to drop the soap, just so you know. (laughs) Okay. Oh, my God. It gets worse and worse, folks. That's all I can say. Now, of course, we can't forget that this is the bicentennial year, and DC took advantage of this, bringing out the Freedom Fighters. But more importantly, upon Kirby coming back to Marvel, he did the bicentennial cap story. Jim, did you love this as a kid? Well, which of the two are you talking about? Because there's two actual things we could be saying. There was Captain America 200, which was known as the Bicentennial issue with great timing. There was also the giant edition of Captain America Bicentennial Battles, both of which are worth talking about. But which one are we talking? Probably both. Uh, You know what? I'm a sucker for those dollar giants. Why don't we start with that and move back to the 25 centers? Okay, so Bicentennial Battles is one of two Jack Kirby giant treasury editions of our original material that were released around this time. Was 2001 the second one? Yeah, 2001 was the second one. Which was beautiful. I love that. It was just fantastic. If you haven't seen it, folks, you need to see Kirby at his cosmic best, in my opinion. Well, Kirby was always more comfortable working on a bigger page. And so this allows him to do what Kirby was doing before the art for comics got smaller in, what, 67, 68, around that time. Right. When he was doing his collages with all the planets and that sort of thing, right? And I believe he even used some of that as part of his 2001. Oh, there's a lot of collage in 2001. The Bicentennial Battles is just such a wacky story and and so much fun for that. I think it's one of my favorite Bicentennial moments of that year, although I'll be discussing in the next segment one I like even more. But yes, that Bicentennial Battle has great content and actually is pretty interesting politically as well. I would recommend it to anyone. Alex, what do you have to say? Do you remember or have you gone back and read the Bicentennial Issues of Cap? Yeah, so there was at some point a couple years ago, I read the first Tales of Suspense all the way through to Englehart and then Kirby and 
J.M. DeMatteis and Grunewald and after. So I read everything, and the Kirby issues really stand out because it's a very jarring change. I don't know if you guys felt that way, but it was very jarring that it didn't really jive with anything that went before or even around the Marvel Universe at the time. I think Jack Kirby was 3,000 miles away in California. He was kind of mentally and emotionally detached from the Marvel bullpen. He really had no interest in interacting with the other comic books at the time. So his stuff in 76, 77, they're all just isolated away from the greater Marvel Universe. Some people don't like that. Some people do. I liked it, but it was really different. I love the art, though, when the Mad Bomb went off and the entire city was going nuts and these double-page spreads were pretty incredible. There was a lot of chaos, and he was really good at putting that down on paper. He really expressed himself in those Captain America issues. Also, I think that he refused to work on Fantastic Four and Thor. I think those were his babies in the 1960s. So decided he wanted to go back to his original character that he had created, or original reoccurring character that he created for Marvel, which was obviously Captain America. So that's an interesting set of comics to read, just for where he's at in his life and then what Captain America is doing in those adventures. But again, it's really different from the Captain Americas that were going on before and after. It's really its own isolated thing. I always oh, thought that one aspect of it was that Stan Lee's fingerprints weren't on Captain America the way they were Fantastic Four or Thor because it predates Stan. So when he goes to Captain America, it's his creation, not a Stan Lee, Jack Kirby creation. Could be. Okay, however... This was the last time, the last year, and the last time that Kirby and Dan Lee worked together, and that was on the hardback Silver Surfer, if I'm not mistaken, right, Jim? I thought that was 78. Yeah, I don't think it's... Is it that late? Okay, well, they will get together later, and they don't work together for eight years that he didn't work with Stan Lee, even though he had come back to Marvel, right? It was a fun issue to read. That was 78. It was called The Ultimate Cosmic Erotic Experience. Do you guys remember that issue? Didn't have erotic in the title, Alex. Again, you (laughs) mislead the folks with your brand. Rated R. That's what it was, right? The Ultimate Cosmic Erotic Experience. Erotic wasn't in the title, was it? (laughs) Oh, my God. I don't even... Folks, look, as your host, I'm just as much, you know, zonked by some of Alex's comments as you are. Jim takes it all in stride because he's a divorce attorney. But getting... getting <laughs> yeah, that's why. <laughs> get just it. like community property. Yes. <laughs> We're having too much fun here. So that then brings us to part three, am I not mistaken? Wait, so part three, yes, it is. Part three is everything is personal. (laughs) After the fun of last podcast with our Christmas stories, we're going to try and recreate that again this time. And each of us are going to tell you a few of our favorites from 1976. Starting with you, Alex, what do you have to say about the wonderful bicentennial year? Well, this was the year that Chris Claremont started to go full blast on the X-Men as a sole writer in issue 97. And by issue 100, he makes Jean Grey get radiated and augmented into the Phoenix, which is memorable to me because that Dave Cockrum art of her rising from the sea with the bird of fire and her sash, late 70s kind of disco outfit was amazing. 
And the way that then evolves later into the Dark Phoenix saga was all genius by Chris Claremont because this showed that Chris Claremont, like what Tom Morzachowski said in our interview with him, who lettered most of his X-Men pages, was that Chris was not afraid to get out of the shadow of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee and turn X-Men into a completely new and awesome thing. This was also an interesting time because they were creating new ethnic characters. They weren't just putting ethnic people into old costumes. And so you had Mike Grell, who made Tyrock, the first black Legion of Superheroes member in 1976, which was also another great time. And this is funny because I think the Legion of Superheroes, they would try to explain the lack of black people in their series as if they had moved away to live on an island. Did you guys know that? No, I did not know that. I mean, isn't that the most bizarre? And I'm not kidding. Mike Grell thought this was a very racist backstory and really wanted a black member in the Legion of Superheroes. Oh, that's right. No, you know, now that you say it, sure. I remember this. Tyrock isn't used at all because it's such a wacky story. And so then Dawn Star was a Native American, and she was in the Legion at this time. Karate Kid, he got his own book, and that was more of a martial arts kung fu type book, although it was karate. And what's nice about that time is that they were really just trying to make ethnic characters and just put them out there. And that's what the all-new, all-different X-Men did. And honestly, DC was always late to everything. So maybe DC did that just because X-Men had come out a year before. But I thought those were kind of cool. Val Armour isn't ethnic in his original incarnation. That's true. He starts to get drawn Asian a little bit like at some point. He's not even coded Asian when he's first introduced with his super karate. Right, right. Everything was white back then. Another reason why Karate Kid came such a cash cow for DC is that the movies, the Karate Kid movies later on, had to pay money to DC for using the name. So they got quite a bit out of that short run where he was kicked back into present day, into basically the shoes of the more recently departed Bruce Lee, if you ask me. Right. Interesting. And then my third is the first Nova comic by Marf Wolfman. I really like Nova. I like Dick Ryder, who is the first Nova. Um, You guys know Dick Ryder, right? Richard Ryder. Richard Ryder. (laughs) I I don't know Dick Ryder. It was never Dick. It was never Dick. Now, hold on. Wait. Now, I thought Dick was a shortened Richard. Dick Ryder Nova. At any rate, so Dick Ryder Nova was a fun character for me. He was kind of a rehash of the Silver Age What was that? It was more Richer Richard. It wasn't Dick. (laughs) And what I really like is Marf Wolfman was essentially kind of bringing up that Silver Age storyline of a teenage kid, a bizarre science fiction event, makes him into a hero. And those were really fun issues for me because I like that style of story. Not everything has to be so serious and dark. So I really enjoyed the Dick Ryder Novas. I really like the costume. And what's interesting about that costume is, I don't know if you guys know this, but Len Wein and Marv Wolfman designed that costume in one of their fanzines. So that was actually their creation, not John Romita or whoever else. Costume was from their old fanzine. Did you guys know that? Yeah, and yes, I did. And by the way, I also knew that that costume was used as the Nova Corps in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. So we see that costume quite a bit. And I actually enjoyed seeing that because that's one of my favorite costumes from the 70s, actually, Alex. Yeah, same here. I love that costume. And when he came back in the New Warriors in the 90s, I'm talking about the Dick Ryder Nova. I loved first how they had a kind of a tan yellow version, but I love the helmet. 
with the star kind of around the nose, kind of like a Roman centurion. And then I really liked how they then brought back his older 70s costume later on in the New Warriors run. So I love Dick Ryder Nova. He's my favorite. And so hopefully they bring him back. Alex, I'm trying to recall, was Dick Ryder's principal villain the Sphincter? Was that what it was? That's right. The Sphinx. The Sphinx, you mean. Yes. The Sphincter. The Sphinx, not the Sphinx. Oh, my God. That's uh, right. Dick Ryder versus the Sphincter. My goodness. Yeah, you perverted Jim, <laughs> too. No, no, no. Jim just joked like that because he's a divorce attorney. That's why. Yep, that's, that's why. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much. Goes back to law school. <laughs> I do love the Nova versus Sphinx storylines, and I love how they brought that back in the New Warriors comics. You know, as a Middle Eastern kid reading comics, I like seeing the Sphinx character. I thought that was interesting. And so, yeah, those were fun comics for me to read. You were a Middle Eastern Midwest kid? Wait, what? Because I'm from Montana. That's the Middle East, right? Of the United States. Yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So that brings us to you, Jim. What what were your picks for 1976? Okay, my three favorite things of 1976 that took place was Howard the Duck's presidential campaign, including the comic, but also more than anything else, that Howard the Duck presidential button drawn by Bernie Wrightson. Did it say Get Bent America? Get Down America. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm channeling Alex again. Oh, Get Bent. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was channeling Alex. There. Channel me more, Bill. Channel me more. It, it was it was get down, get down, America. And uh, please continue, Jim. I'm sorry. That's actually a funny joke, uh, which is what's surprising me. What does the button say? Get down, America. Do you guys remember the name of the political party that Howard was in? I forgot the funny animal party. It was the All Night Party. I like that. And he teams up with Kiss soon after that. I have to make a confession, and I do this every once in a while. I didn't get the joke until just now. Like, this this very moment is the first time that I got Get Down America. Oh, wow. It only took you 42 years. <laughs> well, Jim, on the ball. Now, what are you getting about Get Down America, just so I make sure that we're on the same page? Down, like duck feathers. Oh, Get I down. never got that until right now. Wow. I guess I'm just as bad as you. You just blew my mind. Oh, my God. I didn't get that either. This has now become the most important podcast I've had because it's taken me that long. What, 40 years? Well, you know what today is in Catholic religion? It's the Feast of the Epiphany. So I think that's quite fitting because Jim has had an epiphany. Catholic Jim. Well, we all so, have, haven't we? No, we've all had the down duck. Get down, epiphany. America, and it has a yes. duck on it. Yes. It only took us 42 years to get that subtle kind of thing there, Marvel. That's pretty amazing. That's not Marvel. That's Steve Gerber. Good going. And keep going, Jim. I know you have a couple others. I do, but I'm kind of stunned by that discovery. This is like it took me 15 years after I read Iger-sanctioned Trevanian books, and one of the principal villains was Eurasis Dragon, and I didn't read that as Eurasis Dragon huh. until like a decade or so later. But this one actually now supplants that as the, the longest I-didn't-get-the-joke that I could think of. Yeah. That is, 42 years. Well, you know, I was in my mid-30s when I realized that Out Cult's Yellow Kid wasn't about an Asian kid. Yeah, Mickey Dugan. So I didn't realize he was an Irish-American kid who was dressed in a yellow robe. (laughs) 
But we've talked about this. He looks like Connie from Terry and the Pirates to me, but that's another story altogether. Before we move on from Gerber on Jim's list, Gerber did actually write about... Omega? Well, yeah, he did write Omega in Guardians of the Galaxy. But in Guardians of the Galaxy, he also was writing how Starhawk slash Alita was essentially one of the first transgendered heroes. Also, something interesting is that he had Nikki, the flame-haired girl, to save the universe had to bang Vance Astro in order to kind of save the cosmic universe. So Steve Gerber is just an interesting figure. Him and Englehart on Doctor Strange, McGregor on Black Panther. This was just such an amazing time. For me, reading that stuff later and finally getting it when I didn't get it when I was a kid, it just makes it that much better when you can appreciate it for completely different reasons at different times in your life. What Gerber was doing on Man-Thing was as revolutionary as what Alan Moore was going to do on Swamp Thing. The drug references, everything about that series was so bizarre and just out of this world. Of course, Howard the Duck springs from that. Not to mention Uh, the worst title of all time, Giant Size Man-Thing. Sorry. That was a huge man thing. Also, Bill Field and I both shared a tear together. I don't know if you remember this, Bill. This was one of our bonding moments over that clown in that man thing issue that killed himself in the swamp, shot himself in the head. You remember that? That clown? I cried when I was a kid over that. Why do we have to bring these things up? And you were crying on my shoulder. I was smelling your hair at the time, so I was distracted. But... It smelled like coconut. I know. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of those Gerber Manthing issues, they stand out. They are amazing issues. Especially the Mike Plug ones. Oh, absolutely. I have to agree with you on that 100%. And Plug, who would have still been at Marvel probably to this day, if not for all the things that went on you know, shortly thereafter. All right. the things means one word, which is shooter. That's why he left. Yeah, basically you're right. Jim, you have two more comics to go over. Yep, I do. So the second one, besides the uh, the Get Down America button, would be the Mighty Marvel Bicentennial Calendar, 1976. The 76 one had all Bicentennial pictures. So it would have, for example, it has The Invaders by Frank Robbins in 1776 with Commodore Hopkins, the commander of the Continental Navy. February is General George Washington with an incredible Herb Trimpe, Incredible Hulk. Uh, March shows the Black Panther landing on the British outpost of New Providence Island in the Bahamas. These are just crazy uh, how much fun they are. To a point of absurdity, when you get to the April one, which is Conan the Barbarian by Gil Kane leading the rebel troops. There's so much fun. Some of them are just say just what talent Marvel had at the time. There's a Ichabod Crane, Frank Brunner, one of my favorite drawings of all time with Dracula, Man-Thing, and Werewolf by Night substituting in for the Headless Horseman chasing Ichabod Crane. There was a Jim Starlin one of Captain Marvel, Silver Surfer, and Adam Warlock over a clipper ship of some kind. These were just fantastic. The entire calendar, one of the most memorable ones released during that phase of Marvel when they were doing those yearly calendars. And a little known fact, those calendars came out of the same deal with Simon & Schuster that brought us the Marvel Comics Stan Lee books, Origins of Marvel Comics, Sons of Origins of Marvel Comics, and Bring on the Bad Guys. 
I know you have one more of the. I, I do have one gems. more. That's a, a very small historical note that 1976 was also with the release of Superman 302, I believe. One of my favorite issues for one reason only that this is when created by Siegel and Schuster was restored to the Superman comic. Yeah, that's a big deal. Neil Adams helped make that happen. That's a big deal. And I remember hearing about that on NBC TV on a newscast. So that brings back a lot of memories for me. Yeah, now it's your turn, Bill. Okay, well, in 1975, a year before this, something magical happened, and that was an American version of something that was quite popular in France, and I mean, of course, Matal Herlant, which uh, over here became heavy metal. And in 1976, you had... Fantastic European artists like Drew Lay, like so many, but Mobius being my favorite. And, of course, that was the first year that a lot of his stuff started showing up in the American version, including, of course, the airtight garage. Quite a bit of other European first overs and here in the United States with heavy metal. And if I remember correctly, heavy metal is pretty popular right off the bat, Jim. Do you remember getting your first issue? No, it wasn't for me. I tried it a little bit. It was too strange for me at the time. I wasn't ready for it. I actually bought every issue from about 1976 on. Wow. Well, it was quite fantastic. Now, did you say it exposed you to hepatitis? Is that what you said? No, it did not. No, it, it, no, it did not. Thank you. Thank you, Alec. This also reminded me of, I was 13 at the time, and I believe uh, heavy metal was one of the first times that I saw actual breasts in comics <laughs> at a perfect time for me because I was discovering girls. The Mobius stuff actually was the stuff that I still to this day hold quite fondly in my heart. I met Mobius in the mid eighties and he was a gentleman and a scholar. He was a wonderful guy. He spoke pretty good English. You know, he could get things across, but you could see the passion of a Frenchman with every breath. And he was really a passionate, wonderful artist that a lot of people are still trying to copy, it seems like, even to this day. That was a big one to me. Also, something I still hold dear to me to this day is my program from the Super DC convention, which I didn't get to. It was in New York City, and I was a kid stuck in Texas at the time. I still go through my dog-eared copy and look at the wonderful articles on everything from customizing models because they weren't doing a lot of the current DC characters as Aurora models at the time. So how to turn your models into John Jones and some of the other, the Shazam family, etc. A lot of other neat things that I don't think we've seen since then. And they certainly didn't continue doing the con after 1976, but... I still remember to this day because I look at the program on somewhat of a biweekly basis. And then I would have to say I was a big fan of Omega, and Omega started hitting its stride in 76 by Gerber. We briefly mentioned it earlier. It was not ended properly as far as I was concerned. It went all of, I believe, 10 issues. It was like 10 to 12 something, and it crossed over with a couple other comics too. And Bill Mantlo ended it. It was not Steve Gerber who actually ended it. Yeah, Gerber left Marvel during that period, if I'm not mistaken. Ger- Ger- no, and Manlo was aside both that also wrote Howard the Duck, too, for Howard Duck magazine. Right. Nothing against Manlo. He had a great run on ROM and, and other works. Yeah, he created Rocky Raccoon. But Steve Gerber was Howard the Duck, and 
Howard the Duck minus Steve Gerber is a soulless husk of meat that has no personality and no shine to it. And Steve Gerber equals Howard the Duck for me. Yep, me too. Also, Howard the Duck was probably the worst thing that ever happened to George Lucas, but that's another story for another time. I don't know if you guys ever read Steve Gerber's Fool Killer from 1990. Did you guys ever read that? Sure. Yes. Yes, of course. It's almost like Fight Club before Fight Club, and I love that Fool Killer series. Steve Gerber was such a genius. He had a way of making fun of both sides of the political aisle and how each one has their own foolish stuff. He was not afraid to go after the human condition in a very almost nihilistically funny way and just incredible. I can't speak highly enough about Steve Gerber. And it's true. 1976 was a manifest year for him, but his whole career was fantastic for me. Well, guys, can you believe it's that time again? It's time for the weekly rant. This week, I'm going to start with you, Alex Grand. And if you can try to keep us from going into the gutter as you have the rest of the show, I I would appreciate it. But, you know, you're going to go where you want. So just go ahead, Alex. Thank you, Bill, for that throat-staggering intro. I appreciate it. And, you know, I'm going to stay away from the gutter on this one. And my weekly rant has to do with 1976, actually. But it's about Joe Kubert. He started his school hit the Joe Kubert Art School in 1976. And he started out just in comics in the Harry Chesler shop in 1938. And he actually started a correspondence art school in the early 1950s, which didn't do so well with the comics code and all these smaller comics companies falling apart. But he really felt that people learning the ropes of comics by doing was severely missing. And he didn't feel like there was a good transition for people who had talent and the people that can actually make that talent work in the normal professional world, that there was not a good transition. So he started the Joe Kubert School in 76 in New Jersey with his wife. And there were a lot of awesome graduates. You had Rick Veitch, Stephen Bissett, and many others who were trained there. And Rick Estrada, who we talked about, who you guys are saying was a Wallywood flesh bag or vehicle. That's what you guys are saying. But also Dick Giordano, Erwin Hassan, Robert Kaniger, and many others all trained new artists and writers there. And what these guys were able to do was to learn the steps of comic creating with penciling, writing, inking, and production, and then get freelance work for DC once they were thought to be good and professional enough. And so my hat's off to Joe Kubert for putting together this school, which was an incredible innovation and something fantastic for the newer 20th century kids to be able to learn from the older 20th century kids. And I feel like that needs to happen today. I feel like newer 21st century kids need to probably learn a little more from the later 20th century kids. I think the baton should be passed in a better way than what it is now. And Jim, that brings us to your rant of the week. Quick things, I wanted to add that American Splendor started in 1976, too, by Harvey Picar. I think that's too significant to leave out. Also, that Jim Steranko's graphic novel, Chandler Red Tide, also premiered in 1976, and both of those should probably be mentioned. I want to say that yesterday I spent a lovely day with the grandson of the originator of Harvey Comics, Johnny Harvey, 
And he was doing a documentary on the history of Harvey Comics. And we spent the whole day together talking about that. To bring it into 1976, I want to say that this was a sad year in one respect. This was the year that Little Dot ended with issue 164 and Little Lotta ended with issue 120. And Playful Little Audrey ended with issue 121. So it might have been a good year in terms of superhero crossovers, but a sad year in terms of kid comics for little girls well the harvey comics girls the harvey girls as it's now titled is actually coming to netflix very soon and that includes the three girls you just mentioned dot lotta and audrey so everything old rather is new again jim okay that's uh, that's that's fine well said bill Thanks for that agreement there, Jim. That brings me to my rant this week. And my rant this week is The Gifted, the Marvel X-Men TV show on Fox. It's been renewed for a second year. I love that show. That's so good. It's not doing fantastic. Yes, it's not doing fantastic in the ratings, but good enough that Fox realizes they may have a tiger by the tail. It's probably one of the best X-Men vehicles I've ever seen. I agree. That's a great show. I'm trying to remember the guy who has directed so many of them. The one who directed Usual Suspects. Oh, Brian Singer. Now, is Brian Singer actually directing those episodes? He's directing some of them, but he is executive producer for the entire series. It's very close to the Days of Future Past era, in a way, the current day part of that anyway. I really am enjoying it quite a bit, and I'm glad that Fox is seeing clear to go ahead, even though the season's only half over, to acknowledge how good it is and give it a second season. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Bill, I wouldn't get too attached to Brian Singer on this. Uh-oh. Why would that be? Oh, he's already been removed from Legion amid the sexual allegations. He's going to go. He's There's no way they're going to keep him. He's going to lose his executive what? producer status. What? He's also been accused of sexual misconduct? He's a major, major sexual predator i mean going back to the x-men movies he's uh, captain weinstein jr he's been removed as executive producer on legion and it's almost a certainty he'll be bounced off the gifted as well is there actual proof of these things or is this just internet hearsay and now people are just gonna witch hunt what's going on here jim you know better than me With Singer, there's a long, long trail of this, of lawsuits, of allegations. In a case like this, I don't think that there's a lot of doubt that he's made some errors in this regard. Didn't he date Holly Berry during this time, or do you think she was pressured into it? Wait, but Brian Singer is not heterosexual. I don't think he dated Holly Berry. Right. Oh, really? Oh, I did not know that. I thought that was actually kind of a cool thing for the X-Men perspective to have someone that maybe felt like they had to hide their trait from the general public. I thought that the Brian Singer... You're saying he's a mutant? No. Uh, Well, I don't know. I mean, aren't we all? I'm a mutant. I have two eyebrows. A lot of my cousins have one. (laughs) (laughs) And I ran, I ran so far. I love that song. That's (laughs) the Iranian national anthem, wasn't it, Bill? How did you know that? Yes, it is. A lot of people don't realize that. Man, yet again, folks, we've had more fun than I think we're legally allowed to have in Texas. But thank God my other two cohorts are in California. So we bring to an end one of my favorites, the Bicentennial episode. (laughs) And it'll be another 200 years before we uh, get back to normal, folks. But we will see you in the next week or two right here on the Comic Historian Podcast. I'm Bill Field, your host. And for Jim and Alex, we bid you a fond aloha. Till next time.
Aloha. Aloha.